0: Patricia Rose Degnan, thank you so much for for coming on uh, the the program here. It's really an honor to have you. It's really um, great great to speak with you.
1: Happy to be here. This is a great project you've got going, Matt.
0: <laughs> thank you. Um, so now you uh, have been uh, somebody who's I think I've met you once or twice before, maybe um, in the hallways at ILM many many years ago. What year were you
1: there, Matt?
0: So i was there from 92 to 1999
1: so by that point i would have been uh by 92 i would have been out of the staff at ilm out of the executive management staff out of marketing and doing um, the creativity project with ntt where i was interviewing a lot of people so we definitely would have in the hall um
0: was that project was that the book
1: no no the book was uh kind of simultaneous i guess uh that's because yeah, i think while- that
0: came out while i was there if i remember it
1: so. oh well that it came out later and i really only participated in the first draft because i did all the interviewing i would i really loved doing that project because it got me so Um, close to all the key people like having hours of conversation with them and then I would go home and shape it was like sculpting you know page after page after page of just transcribing their interview and then I would shape that into a chapter but I was under the direction of a um, of an editor at Ballantine who really kept pushing me more about the people, more about the stories, not so much about how long the ship was or how many lights were put in that particular ship or how many little air conditioning fans were thrown in there. <laughs> so I did it more about the people and then that editor left the job and came back a new editor who wanted all detail, all sure. you know, data. And at that point, I had just started as executive producer on a show called Bump in the Night, which had about 20 stop motion stages simultaneously producing a Saturday morning ABC TV show. So I just did not feel like starting over. So I handed the book off to the um, person that ended up getting the, the lead credit. I forget his right. name.
0: Yeah. Mark yeah. something, I think, Vaz.
1: Mark, uh, yeah, yeah. He, he was an excellent writer. He took all my stuff and just finished the book. And I got a co-author credit on it.
0: Nice. Well, we should say yeah, it's the second coffee table book about ILM called Into the Digital Realm. I believe yeah, it's and the what subtitle. Yeah, a
1: terrible <laughs> marketing choice they made to make the cover look exactly like the first one. Yeah. It's just slightly different. <laughs> so everyone would look at the book and think, oh, I own that, because everybody bought Tom Smith's version.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Although I will say I, I don't think it, uh, well, I mean, you would probably know better than me, but everybody I know uh, certainly has a copy of that book.
1: Oh, good. Both. <laughs> both.
0: So... so uh, Rose, so I'm curious. I I don't know much about your like personal background. Where are you from?
1: Yeah, I was born uh, at uh, in San Francisco to working class family. My my grandparents owned a bar in the Mission District. Now oh, wow. it's a beauty bar. It's uh, 19th and Mission. And it was a real working man's bar. People they would open at six a.m. and all these workers would come in and get a shot to go fortify themselves <laughs> before their hard day at fortified, the fortified, yeah, at the <laughs> wharf or whatever. Um, and then my other grandparents' side, my dad's side—that was my mom's side—the bar. Uh, and then the my dad's side was—he um, was a fireman. She was a maid. They all came from Ireland. All four grandparents. I'm 100% Irish. Oh, right on. And then my dad was this really smart guy who was the first one in his family not only to get a college degree, but he went on and got a Ph.D. and worked at Hoover Institute at Stanford for, gosh, his whole career. Wow. He became the curator of the African and Middle East collections. He was a real intellect, a very independent thinker.
0: What was his Ph.D. in?
1: His Ph.D., well, he started it in Western civilization because he was going to be a teacher at Stanford of Western Civ. And then he got distracted by Africa in the um, 50s and colonialism in Africa specifically and the impacts of that. And so he wrote his Ph.D. on that. So my mother, with four children already and ended up with six children, was putting him through a Ph.D. program. And and, you know, he he always had three jobs we lived in stanford housing longer than any other family we <laughs> <laughs> oh, we lived four of us uh, six of us lived in a house in a in a two-bedroom apartment uh, until i was in fourth grade when my dad finally got his phd and we moved to stanford where he became the curator of the african collection right away and rode his bike to work every day oh, so i man. grew up on the stanford campus very you know um very fortunate yeah. Um, my parents were very uh, extroverted and had, had cocktail parties at least every month. And so the only African, the only black Americans, uh, black people I knew were, you know, had English accents and were from Africa or England or Europe. And uh, it, it was very heady. And, and we, as the older children, would, you know, serve cocktails and appetizers and they would talk to us. So we learned how to talk to adults at a very young age.
0: Mm -hmm. So, and you had, you had, I guess I gather three siblings.
1: I ended up with uh, five siblings. Uh, The twins were born when we returned from Africa. So five girls, one boy, right after me, the boy was born. I'm second in that Mm -hmm. line. So I have an older sister and the rest of us, my older sister lives in, um, Uh, Memphis, and Ohio, and Idaho. She has three different spots. But the rest of us all live uh, close by, and we have an extremely close family. Everyone is envious, because- That's so nice. In coronavirus, nobody sees sees my brother. He's down in Palo Alto. But um, we all- pre-corona would see each other every quarter and have massive parties and just, we love each other. There's no weird dynamic among this family. We are oh, so, that's so great. <laughs> How often does that happen?
0: I know. Yeah. That's pretty unusual, especially <laughs> these days. It's a lot of contentious issues in yeah. multiple families. Yeah. So, so you're a true Bay area, San Francisco yeah. native, uh, yeah. and, uh, growing up and, in, and, in, uh, on the Stanford campus was, um, uh, was a university education, something that, uh, was important in your family. Did you, did you? Yes,
1: clearly since my dad was the first one, um, all of us went to Stanford. Uh, one sister went to UCLA, but, mm-hmm. but we all ended up getting free education at Stanford. Cause in those days when your parents worked there, you, whether you're a son or daughter of a gardener or the president of the university, you got free Stanford yeah.
0: tuition remission. Free I tuition. Think they call it right. <laughs>
1: yeah, it was amazing. So no debt <laughs> coming yeah, out. Of that's college.
0: great. So what, <clears throat> what did you study?
1: Well, actually I studied film. I studied communications and I really chose my career. I was, I was a dropout potential, and I actually did drop out my freshman year. I just didn't feel like I belonged or had earned my spot there mm-hmm. because I was a Stanford brat, we were known as. you know, We were not <laughs> held to the same standards for grades, SAT scores. It was free. So I dropped out my freshman year and went to Hawaii. And when I returned, uh, I went to England, And went to the overseas campus program because I wanted to be a uh, bookbinder. It was so counterintuitive for me to be a bookbinder. I'm an extrovert. I'm a people person. (laughs) (laughs) I love to boss people around. and And a bookbinder just works, you know, on this old world. But I thought, oh, that'll be good for me. And my dad had a conversation with me and said, you can go to England take bookbinding on the side, but you are going to graduate from Stanford. And I... Probably good advice. It was great advice. And it was his co-worker, a lady named Marie Perenbaum, who was also an Africanist at Hoover. And she and I became friends. She became a good friend of my whole family. And she told me women's voices need to be heard in film and media. They are not being heard. It's all, you know, white males creating this, this media and giving us all perspective on the world. And we need women's perspective. So that gave me a little something to hang on, you know, something to do. And so my very first film was uh, I came back from Stanford from overseas and I, was taking, you know, film classes and film production and I went and did a special project, an independent study project and I did a film about how to have an orgasm. I felt <laughs> it was really important <laughs> for women All right. to figure this out and for men to realize that it, their orgasm isn't the only one that counts and here's some basic info and here's some basic psychological sure. you know, perspective. So, I made this film I was a junior in college, and it went, I, I I sold it, and it was distributed to every college health center oh, in wow. America. So I made like, I don't know, 60 grand in those days. Really? My dad had never made that from any of his book publications, so he was.
0: Well, yeah, I guess that the, the sex sells, right? So, well,
1: yeah, even educational sex yeah. sells.
0: Well, it's an important message, I think, too. It you know,
1: still is. It yeah. still is. I think I should do a remake of it. Yeah, you could do the the, but... the sequel. <laughs> so that's what hooked me on film was actually that's... studying film and um, making movies, and then making that. Yeah, that's film, really cool. Was, I
0: didn't realize they had a uh, film production program uh, at Stanford. So it was all, was was your film 16 millimeter or 35 yes, millimeter?
1: 16 millimeter. I did it as an independent study. Um, they do have uh, a documentary film division for grad okay, people, but it's tiny. They're, there's 16 students in it.
0: And were you doing all the, like, uh, the shooting of it? Did you have somebody shoot it for you? Or were no, you shooting it yourself? No, I had Pat
1: Crowley. Pat Crowley shot it for me. He was a he was in that program. He's gone mm-hmm. on to become a major successful producer, working with Frank Marshall oh, yeah. on okay. all kinds of blockbusters. All the, um, oh, what is the Matt Damon series where he's a spy?
0: Oh, the Bourne movies. The Bourne yeah.
1: Identity series. He did all those. You no, know, Pat shot it for me. And when I, when I, Edited the film and put it together. And I was showing it to Ron Alexander, who was my instructor. He says, it's a good film. It's not a great film. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. It's so uh, unsophisticated. Well, still, it it sounds
0: like it was an entree into uh, other opportunities,
1: maybe. Exactly. Exactly. And truthfully, when I shared it with my daughters when they were old enough, like 16, 17 juniors in high school, I didn't watch it with them. But I had my daughter and her friends watching it. And about 5, 10 years later, one of the girls came up to me and said, you saved my life. <laughs> wow, that's great. So I know that it had impact. Because yeah. it was just, you know, permission to take responsibility for your own sexual gratification and to figure out how to do it so that sure. you can share that with your partner. I mean, really basic stuff. <clears throat> but to this day, people don't do it.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. Yeah, so
1: that's what got me into the film business, and then I moved to LA with my uh, soon-to-be husband. He was a musician. I wanted mm-hmm. to pursue film. I wanted to pursue documentary film, actually, and so we moved to LA, and that was the start of my of my uh, film career.
0: Yeah, so what so when you got to LA did you uh, were, was it easy to find work? Were you able to you know, connect this the dots there? Pre
1: Google, right? Pre sure. internet. So it was nineteen seventy four and I graduated June and I think we moved to LA that summer. I spent my first month every day from ten till five, because those are the hours Hollywood works, uh, unless you're in production. Uh, calling every single production company in the phone book. <laughs> I got about five interviews out of it.
0: Oh, that's and one good.
1: of those interviews led me to working with um, Wakef- Wakeford Orloth. It was a commercial production company. Specifically, I was hired as secretary receptionist to Stan Dragati whose claim to fame was Love at First Bite with George Hamilton.
0: Oh, cool.
1: <laughs> but he was making million dollar commercials in you know the late 70s. Yeah.
0: Now,
1: or the mid 70s, I should say. Those were big commercials. We did commercials with Peter Sellers, Franco Harris, major commercials. And so I was ambitious. Hmm. And I recall saying to them, they let me come on the set, right, during the shoot days. Yeah. and I was, So I was like a PA on the set, but then there was nobody answering calls back at the shop. So I would pay my friends to come and sit there and answer phones <laughs> so that I could be on the set. So finally they just said, why don't you just be our coordinator? You won't work full time, but you'll make you know, three times the money uh, per day. So I quit the secretary position and worked with them exclusively as a production coordinator on the set.
0: So was this, this must have been something for you then, like once you kind of get started doing this, like you obviously really enjoyed it. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. I was made for this because it's very, it, fulf- it hits all my boxes. You know, I love efficiency. I mm-hmm. love communication, organization. I hate wasted time. I hate people working on something that is no longer applicable to the project.
0: It seems like it's a long distance from bookbinding.
1: I never did study (laughs) bookbinding.
0: That was just a weird, like, uh, bee in your bonnet, maybe at one point.
1: My dad was right. I mean, I (laughs) still—that's the part of me I haven't developed: that hyper focus, that um, you know, that total dedication to the the craft of anything. And truthfully, I have to say, my whole career—it's not been about making the most beautiful images. My mm-hmm. job was always looking at my watch, picking up my phone if someone was going on too long in my office. yeah, <laughs> I'm dialing a number. you know it's like I'm kind of blunt that way i'm I'm very much on the production side, not on the creative side at i l m We had so many people on the creative side, yeah. and nobody at the beginning had any power on the production side, mm-hmm. which is why. I think they ran into trouble early on um, on the original Star Wars. There was really nobody on the side of the production pushing for things to, you know, targets to hit. Yeah. Uh, Here's the pathway. Here's the timeline. And then making sure that we hit it. Yeah. So nothing was delivered. When I started there, they had hired. So, how, wait, me before
0: before you go the, yeah. like, how did how did you get there? How did that oh like, okay. you're you're so, at this commercial production house, you're doing a lot of work with them, right. and you're moving into a production kind of capacity. Like are you there for a number of years or what how no, does the... No, no,
1: it was a short jump. So I worked at um, for Stan Dragotti for a while. He was married to Cheryl Tiggs, by the way. Which oh, is why really? I don't know if you've uh, done any research, but if you go online and Google me, you'll see lots of pictures of me. Mm-hmm. Well, Cheryl Tiggs taught me how to look good in pictures. <laughs> she, was, she used to walk into the office wearing like a sweatsuit, no yeah. makeup. She didn't even brush her hair. And she looked like an angel. She just was <laughs> so pretty. And so when, when she saw me and my clothes and the beautiful new office, she said, we need to go shopping. So she took me shopping and she got permission from Stan to spend some money. And she only bought me black, white, and red things. Hmm. And so it was a whole – because that went with the office. Yeah. But anyway, (laughs) she taught me to smile. Okay, you want to know how to do it, Matt? You'll look so good in pictures from now on. (laughs) Okay. So firstly, you don't look at the camera. You ask the photographer to count to three slowly and then click. Mm -hmm. So you ask them to count. When they say one – you're not looking at the camera, you're breathing in. On two, you breathe out. On three, you throw your face at the camera. Your chin is slightly down, your eyes are slightly up. And <laughs> ideally, you're facing kind of sideways, but that's that's more advanced. All you have to do is put that fresh smile on. That's the key. That you All don't right. stare <laughs> at the camera while they're lining up the shot, you know, and then you have this tired old smile. This is a fresh smile every time. So I've shared that <laughs> with so many people, Matt. I really think that's that might be my legacy. <laughs> I've made so many people look good in pictures. That's great. But anyway, I'm working at, at, at Dragati. Yeah. And I was a freelancer at that point, right? Coordinating. Mm-hmm. So somebody from the crew who had worked on a crew with us doing a commercial called me up to work on um, an army, series of army films. Hmm. And I had to do everything. I was props. I was wardrobe. I was set decorator. I was PA, running to get lunch. I did everything. And I really impressed this one person named Lon Tinney, who was the production manager. So when he got the call from George Mather to be the production manager on this Star Wars that was way behind schedule. And we had like eight months to go to deliver 365 shots and none had been delivered. Um, so Lon Tenney got hired and he hired me as the PA. So Damn I get man. called into the office and I'm, you know, asking questions of the receptionist, like, well, is, is George Lucas a nice guy? I loved American graffiti. What's this movie about? You know, I know it's sci-fi, but, and she was acting really weird, and and there was this uh, young man sitting next to me. I just assumed he was the runner. He had his feet on the table. He was very low-key. And when I get called into the office for the interview by John Dykstra, in walks this guy. He just hops up and follows me in. Well, it was George Lucas, of course. <laughs> and they asked me two questions. George asked, uh, do you take shorthand? I said, well, no, but I write really fast. And can you start Monday?
0: <laughs> yes. All right. So that
1: launched me on the ILM trail. Sounds like a tough,
0: tough interview.
1: Oh, yeah. It was like (laughs) two minutes. And I came in at the end and I was paid like $50 a day, $250. Mm -hmm. And I later, years later, got hold of this yellow pad, handwritten, legal-sized piece of paper that had everybody's name and their salaries. Mm -hmm. And $250 was actually like, you know, the head of the model shop was making three hundred fifty. dollars the head of engineering was making three hundred. John Dykstra was making five hundred, the highest paid person. So you know, Richard Devlin was making like three fifty. Nobody was making over three fifty. So I yeah. felt like, wow, I did all yeah. right here. You
0: were doing pretty good, yeah. yeah. So that's interesting. So that was that was the the first iteration of ILM in Los Angeles formed to do the work on that project.
1: Correct. We did a whole show on this. Um, last, a year and a half ago at the Academy, where we compared the all-analog tools with mm-hmm. the, of Star Wars with the all-digital tools of Rogue One. And I had Dykstra and John Knoll and Dennis Murin and, uh, you know, all these leads from um, both movies. And it was a fascinating comparison. It was yeah. so hard then. It oh, i sure. I mean, imagine optical processing compared to now compositing being done layers. Not that it's easy, but you can do, you can work at 10x the speed. Yeah, at, and you weeks.
0: can see what you you can see the result before you render oh, it really. Yeah. You know? Before you
1: send it out to a lab and then just hope there wasn't an error on it. And the mass, and Bruce Nicholson broke down a very simple four element shot from Star Wars and just how many passes it had to make through the optical printer. To be re-photographed element by element including every mat and every color separation and it was like 28 times through the computer through the um Mm -hmm. printer before you got a take of a simple shot
0: so was there anything do you think in your background like either maybe growing up or or something in school or just an interest of your own that that um allowed you or gave you that Um, kind of insight into being able to kind of grok what was happening there because I mean did you have like is it such an unusual sort of that post-production visual effects especially at that time I mean they're sort of figuring a lot of things out as they go like oh yeah was was there any element of your background that like kind of made that all kind of click for you or were you also kind of learning as as you went with that
1: what a good question Matt what pops out to me and what I think really made me the person I am and the and the right fit for that job. I went to six elementary schools. Hmm. So every time you go to a new school, because remember my dad was a uh, traveling. He got a Ford Fellowship. We went to uh, London. We went to Boston first, right. then London, then Africa. Um, then we moved in with my grandparents. Then we moved down to Palo Alto, uh, sorry, Stanford where I was in student housing. So I went to six elementary schools. When you start over at a new school in the middle of the year, you have to either sink or swim. And my approach was to be an extrovert, outgoing, Mm -hmm. you know, make new friends. And so I think that basis, I'm not afraid of anything because of that experience. So being thrown into new deep waters, no biggie. And at Star Wars, I must say, people were so supportive. You know, these were all friends of John Dykstra. And John was just talk about a gregarious, extroverted, outgoing, sweet human being. You could trust him with your life. And he created, he hired all his friends to work on Star Wars. So everybody was figuring it out. No one had ever, I mean, he was copying the motion control camera, but it was done on a much smaller scale with, I think, a 16 millimeter camera at Berkeley. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And he rebuilt it here using VistaVision, which is 35 on its side. And um, so what they were doing, every new piece of equipment, we had to buy all this old equipment and then refurbish it, you know, old VistaVision printers. And then, and then, um, then of course they started building their own equipment at ILM after that. But I guess the fearlessness—I just, I just stepped into that and thought, okay, here's the job. We got to get it done. Here's the dates, and started. Really, it was just me pressuring. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> like, well, it sounds like too that that upbringing of all the different schools, like it necessitates a kind of. Like you say, a real outgoing kind of self-confidence. And I think having those those things sort of in your in your repertoire of sort of interpersonal skills in an environment like that that's constantly changing, growing, developing, um, where you know you're really kind of coordinating all the efforts of you know a team of people, you could see where that's kind of a nice natural fit.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I was the right person for that job at the time. Do you and remember it, how
0: how many employees were there yeah. at ILM at the time?
1: Yeah, seventy five people were credited in the um, end movie visual effects credits. So seventy five people contributed to those three hundred and sixty five shots, and you know it was a dump. <laughs> it was a yeah.
0: dump.
1: <laughs> the furniture was was gross um, the, you know, in the entryway, there was just nothing fancy about it. Well,
0: it seems like that was kind of a tradition though. I think, uh, it, when it moved up North, it was, it was still kind of a dump. I mean, it was a dump <laughs> that we, we weirdly kind of loved it in a strange way, I think, but it's not as nice as the, uh, spot they have now.
1: Correct.
0: Correct. So so that show, uh, you know, was clearly uh, one that went on to really change the movie business and certainly changed the visual effects industry. Um, Did you know, uh, thinking back on it, like, I mean, while you were there working on it, did you have a sense that this was something that was going to be big, that it was going to be really groundbreaking or were you just kind of like, Oh, this is a fun job. Like this is kind of a quirky, weird movie.
1: Yes. The latter. We Mm -hmm. no one could have foreseen that it would become this iconic franchise Yeah, Um, it seemed like a B movie. It seemed Mm -hmm. like uh, a serial movie. When we saw the um, premiere in San Francisco, my whole family came, my parents came, and they were thrilled. My parents loved it because it was so like the serial, serials that would play in front of the featurette, it would be the featurette that would play in front of any bigger movie in their growing up in San Francisco. So they really related to it and the corndog humor and all just seemed <laughs> it just did not seem so when we when I when we were done with our part, I stayed on and um I had to deliver something to George. It was the day it was opening and I went to they were doing foreign releases, so laying in all the um what are the you read the, you know, the foreign language. And so he was in the studio doing that on Hollywood Boulevard. And, he's, and I brought food and he said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to just go out. I need to walk around. So he comes back completely in shock. Groman's Chinese Theater was playing Star Wars. And people were around the block, down the road, wearing <laughs> costumes. Like they had already seen it once. And now they were back in line with a costume to see it again. And then he started getting calls from Alan Ladd, you know, Junior and from all these friends like Coppola and everyone going, oh, my God, you have an amazing hit. And uh, he was just he was shocked. So nobody, including George, thought this was going to be what it turned out to be
0: that's pretty exciting for you too. I would think like as a, you know, a, a young person working kind of a, you know, your, I guess your maybe second real big job working on a project like that and having, uh, it turn out to be something really unexpected in terms of, um, just the, you know, really overwhelming success that it had. I mean, now we sort of, you know, just look back on that and sort of take it for granted, but, you know, sort of being, having a window, uh, onto that moment and that experience must've been kind of, um,
1: It was a a different
0: perspective.
1: Yeah, it was heady. But we were in the middle. uh, We had already started or shortly thereafter, we started working on um, Battlestar Galactica. Same group. Uh,
0: Right. Mm -hmm.
1: And that was a TV movie. And they're so proud of the fact that they spent like $14 million on it. And like the most (laughs) expensive TV movie ever made. I thought it was terrible. I mean, I love the (laughs) remake. Oh, my God. The remake is so well written. And I, I binge watched that. But the actual series, I thought was terrible. (laughs) And um, so we were so deep into that. And then the lawsuits started. Yeah. The threat of lawsuits. So I don't recall having any time to be excited, you know, other than the famous incident where, you know, it was April 1978 and it was April 3rd, my birthday, and it was the Academy Awards. And John Dykstra was nominated for you know, Star Wars mm-hmm. and Greg, Grant McCune and um, Robbie Blalack and the practical guy. So John had just started dating uh, Cass McCune. And mm-hmm. so he and Cass had a fight and broke up and it was like the day before the Academy Awards or two days. So he said, well, how, why don't you come with Me? Me? I was so excited. It was my birthday. So I like make arrangements. I get this dress, I'm getting my hair done, my makeup professionally done. When I get a call from Cass saying, we made up.
0: Oh man. I'm going
1: with him. It's like. Dang. So (laughs) I went to the Academy Awards anyway and stood outside with my gown and my makeup and my hair. And I was part of the crowd, you know, the, the watchers sure. mm. And when John and Cass arrive on the red carpet and start walking across, I scream, John Dykstra, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and he sort of looked out, but didn't really hear it. Cause you know, the crowd knows, but sure. security surrounds me. Now I'm like <laughs> this dangerous, crazy woman. So they surround me and they put my arms behind my back and they start walking me off, but I talked really quickly about what happened. And it was my birthday, so they just walked me to my car yeah. and um, they let
0: <laughs> me go. <laughs> That's pretty awesome.
1: So every year since then, and how many years ago was that, 45? Yeah. Every year, um, I dress up for the Academy Awards, and I watch it on TV. <laughs> <So I'm laughs> like, I have jewelry. I do my hair. I don't pay people to do it anymore. no um, <laughs> fun, though. And my girls have taken that up. I have two girls and a boy, and now four grandchildren, and maybe the grandchildren will do it too. It it makes it much more fun. We have champagne, sushi, (laughs) we watch the Academy. I don't let anyone talk during a speech. I'm very strict.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So now you you finish up Star Wars. You're working on the Battlestar Galactica. At what point do you is it i'm not sure the chronology at some point the company moves up to northern
1: california yeah that was a big that was a big shift um i think it was during definitely during battlestar galactica i know richard started working with us on battlestar galactica and and a bunch of people but he left and took a lot of people with him Mm -hmm. and you know, right down to taking doorknobs off the door, it was it was very um, painful for our little studio to be split like that. But yeah. most people stayed because they were John's friends. So right. and Dykstra was not invited to come up north. Hmm. Um, so Dykstra just continued on, reformed his company called Apogee, and had his buddies. I think there were eight of them who were all partners. Uh, they did not invite me to be a partner. I think that was a, a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but um, at that point, I had gone from you know production assistant with no power but lots of you know personality to get stuff done. To uh, I was production like manager on Battlestar Galactica. I was right. directing, putting shots together. I was it was a much bigger job. And then we moved from Apogee. Because now Apogee at the original facility at um, on Valjean was getting other jobs, so when the series went into effect, the first big you know the first big movie slash series, the two-hour version, was all done at at um, at Valjean. But then we all split, and it was new. We got moved to um, Heartland, Heartland hmm. for Universal. And that's where I started losing interest. That's where everything kind of dissipated and Apogee was working on their features and I was not a part of that. And, and so I got very, you know, I have a creative spirit, even though my career has been all about um, getting the job done and just hitting budgets and, and timelines.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I saw a photograph on, in Time Magazine of a woman reaching for an M16 and handing her baby to her husband. <laughs> and I thought, wow, women in the military. What an interesting, you know, paradigm. Yeah, Women, life givers, being trained to be killers working in uh-huh. the military. So I thought this is so interesting. I have to pursue this and do a story about integration of women and men in the military. So I went to Universal, I sat in the office of like big and pitched my story. And he said, you know, if you just add the word comedy, then I can do this. <laughs> so I wanted to do a documentary. Right. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Angst of men and women together, black and white together, rich and poor together. Because it was now the um, the new army. It was the volunteer army, all volunteer. And they. Yep. So anyway, Universal said yes. And I was just to go undercover through basic training and keep a diary and they would decide what to do with it. So I go to D.C., I go to the Pentagon, and now I'm in with top generals pitching this universal uh, TV show that will help them gather. From their perspective, it would help promote, bring in uh, volunteers of Mm -hmm. a higher caliber because they were getting, you know, people were being told either go to jail or go in the army. So they were not getting the highest caliber. So I got them to agree. Although at one point the general, after hearing me, and I looked pretty cute, you know, like I was like 26 and I was wearing a mini skirt and boots and I had my hair done. <laughs> and and uh, he turns to this Colonel, this woman in training and says, well, Colonel, what do you think? And she said, frankly, sir, I think she'd be a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Because he she said she went on to say we can't be babysitting her. She could look at her. She could she could fall on a on a weapon and kill somebody. And I just my I was rankled and I just confronted her and I said if all these people can make it through basic training, trust me, I'm a college educated person. I can do this. I can learn this. So she kind of backed down and he let me do it. And I went undercover for uh, eight weeks in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And it was the Christmas time, like right after Christmas, I got on the bus. And you know, my motivations were, not only was I fascinated by the idea- So was this of, just
0: research or were you filming and recording too? No, I too, wasn't or? filming and
1: recording. I had to go undercover. So I couldn't draw attention to myself. All I could do huh. was was uh, the diary. Um, anyway, I, I Primarily did it because I was so fascinated by integration of women into the military, like how interesting sure. is that. but can, also- I, can
0: I ask a, a question about that? Mm-hmm. I'm so curious. So in your time working on on the, the both at the commercials company you were at as well as working on the first Star Wars film, uh, one of the things that I, I did want to ask you about is that uh, and I wonder if it connects to this pursuit of this project you're describing now, being a, a woman even today, although less so now, but being a woman in the world of filmmaking, in the world of big Hollywood filmmaking, and in the world of um, visual effects, it seems like uh, certainly in those those really early days, there weren't many, if any, women in the field. Were you uh, one of, I, how many women worked with you on that first project? Was it a, a I'm curious i am I, assuming it wasn't a, a very large number
1: yeah there were women in in key positions i was not in a key position I, there were two men above me who basically did nothing and i was the coordinator pa i think i got a production assistant title i was mm-hmm. both there with the driver and the receptionist but in fact i had a much bigger influence i remember when graham mccune he said he used the word officious to describe me, and I took that as a compliment. I had to go home and look it up, and it means, you know, like, overly organized and overly demanding and <laughs> overly efficient, but I took that as a compliment.
0: <laughs> sure. Well, I just um, was wondering if there's any of that, maybe maybe yes. some of that experience that that drove you into, like, an interest in pursuing this other project.
1: Well, let's face it, Matt it is still a man's world. Visual mm-hmm. effects, are you kidding? I mean, yeah. the visual effects society is they won't even ask their members. And I am a I was on the board uh, for the last 2 years and I am um, in pretty much the initiator of something called a mentorship initiative. So mm-hmm. the education committee and and my little subcommittee has pushed forward through VES a mentorship program to be inclusive of women and people of color. Because let's awesome. face it, this is a lot of white males, wonderful yeah. white males. I love white males, <laughs> but but <laughs> it should be more diverse. It should be more For inclusive. Sure. So we all need to do our part to get there. Way back when on Star Wars, <clears throat> there was a... the. Film control that's editorial.
0: Uh-huh. It was
1: all women. Maybe there was one guy, one guy, but it was for women. And that was the most important department because every piece of film went through there and they went tracked them, every yeah. single piece of film. And we were all so impressed with Mary Lind and her team. She knew you would go in and ask her for any piece of film and she would know exactly where it was. She was. Remarkable and amazing, and very sadly, uh, she has uh, passed. Mm-hmm. Um, I never felt the sexism at early mm-hmm. ILM, and even through many years at ILM, I never felt the sexism because we had very divided roles. I was on the production side, and over the years, we created you know, producers instead of just coordinators. Yeah we became producers which had more say and you know had a relationship with the client it used to always be the effects supervisor talking to the client well now it really changed and shifted the balance of power but women were the only ones doing we did have a few male producers and over the years more and more male producers but it was really a woman's realm in those earlier days yeah and i think that reflects you know innate institutionalized sexism because women wouldn't even look at being the effect supervisor or
0: right even today there's still so few female visual effects supervisors which I mean there's a few but I mean the ratio is still so lopsided
1: oh my gosh my friend Caitlin Yang who's an effect supervisor uh, she went on Google and looked up you know how many effects supervisors or LinkedIn one of them Mm-hmm. and the results came back there were like 25,000 total effects people call themselves effects supervisors 0. .0025 were women
0: yeah that's something that it seems like it really has to change
1: that is 0. .0025% so that's really 0. .000025 that right. is something that has to change and that is what um my current focus is is inclusion for women and i'm dealing with women who are have been producers but they are also invited to finish films because the effects supervisor can't do it mm-hmm. or is incapable or is overwhelmed or the studio that he works with can't handle it. So these women are being brought in and they've been the effects producer, but now they're being given. So they're in this transition. And I want to do a whole women in animation you know, leadership circle about that subject. And so I'm proposing one of them lead these women because how inspiring that... And how great for the studios to be able to hire someone who's not only a producer, but also an effect supervisor. And then pretty soon they can distinguish and just become the effect supervisor.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: You know, people with an eye, I have to admit, Matt, that is not me. I am not an effect supervisor, which is maybe why I wasn't (laughs) a threat and why they all got along with me, because there was no way I was going to make creative calls no way. Yeah, it's it's a
0: particular, that. it's definitely a particular kind yeah, of Yeah, it's not my personality thing. type and a certain kind of eye. Yeah,
1: I don't I even know, care that much. Yeah. I <laughs> care that we, how good it looks, like. Right. And and I have to give George Lucas credit because I mean, I learned this from him in the screening room. There could be a mistake, a problem on the lower mm-hmm. left-hand corner of the screen and he would just say, who cares? If anyone's looking at that, we have lost them already. Yeah. It's the final. Let's call it a CBB. Could be better. Right. I loved that about him. He was he would wear his producer hat and director hat, but not get caught up in the minutia. Which yeah. today, with with all the digital tools, I'm afraid it's given people permission to get caught up in the minutia and not look at the big picture of what's this shot? What's the purpose of this shot? What's the motivation here? What are we trying to accomplish with this shot? Yeah,
0: we we oh, used to call that uh, pix- pixel. Tool.
1: Pixel. Yeah.
0: Pixel fucking. Pixel
1: fucking, they call it. (laughs) Yeah. No, I I never (laughs) had to deal with that. We'd had one, two or three takes, you know, and then you had to move on. And if it was an action miniature, you basically, under George, you had two takes. But after George, it was one take. You only built one thing to blow up. So you better hope it worked.
0: So I I didn't mean to derail your story, though, about your your Pentagon experience and your... Oh, no, it was a good question.
1: What what motivated that? Truthfully, Matt, I wanted to lose weight. (laughs) (laughs) And I figured basic training. And I wanted my husband to be more independent. I didn't like him relying on me to make the meals, clean up, do the laundry. I mean, come on. So I partly did it for because I was fascinated by the power dichotomy Mm, of power structure between men and women. And also, wow, you put a woman in this all-male world, what's it gonna be like? Well, what it was like was fascinating. And in the end, at first, all the men wanted to do was have sex with us, light our cigarettes. I actually started smoking then because the only break you ever got, the drill sergeants would say, if you got them, smoke them. So Mm -hmm. if you didn't have cigarettes, you were sent on some sort of cleanup detail. So I started (laughs) smoking just to avoid. But that's where you got to talk. It's the only time you were able to talk to the the men. And all they wanted to do, like I said, was have sex with us until about halfway through the training. And then it became quite clear that they were not going to have sex with us because we lived in one dorm. They lived in another. We were under the eyes of the drill sergeants constantly yeah, no then
0: fraternization, it, right?
1: <laughs> pardon? Oh, no fraternization, absolutely. But at yeah. that point it became divided not among rich, poor, male, female, uh, black, white. It became divided between the hard workers who were serious about getting through this basic training and doing well mm-hmm. and the people that were fuck-offs that just didn't care. They they were just trying to you know, get something over. Yeah. And those people ended up getting recycled, it's called. You get kicked out. If you're not really fitting in and trying hard, you get some a few slipped slipped by. But basically, it was I was really into it. I mean, they offered me a commission at the end of this <laughs> experience, but I would have had to go through basic training again, but as an officer. Right. So huh. you know, I looked into it, I said, Well, how much? And it was like $170 a week is what you would need. Yeah. And on unemployment, I was making one hundred and ten. So I just thought, no,
0: not a great um, deal. Yeah, and
1: I'm not. Oh God, that would have been a disaster. Me, I have a problem with authority. So yeah, in the military, <laughs> that would have been terrible. Terrible choice. Yeah.
0: So did did that? Uh, did the research aspect of it? Did it yield like a project or?
1: Oh, thank you for asking. Um, yeah, I got back with my diary. I typed it up. I got it out there, and actually through a Star Wars connection, Penny McCarthy, um, she was good friends with uh, this guy named Jack McGowan, and he worked for uh, Michael Douglas. So he showed The Diary to Michael Douglas, and Michael Douglas goes, oh, let's option this. So they optioned it, and it ended up being re-optioned and purchased by um, Osmond Television and a really amazing producer named Philip Berry, God rest mm-hmm. his soul. Philip Berry had done um, Kent State, or he was about to do Kent State, and he had done Friendly Fire and won an Emmy. So oh, wow. I thought, wow, it's going to be a consciousness-raising piece about black and white, rich and poor, men and women. And then they hired this writer who wrote, If It's Tuesday, This Must Be Belgium, which is a ensemble piece, and that's what they saw my story being, an ensemble piece. I sold it by going into ABC and doing push-ups. in my uniform Um, and so we did sell it it did get developed a script was written sad story marie osmond was their select for playing me the undercover Mm. woman Mm. and she had to do one other film before mine and that was also for the same network and it was based on wyatt Earp, and she was mrs wyatt Earp, and she did such a poor job that they pulled the plug. They never finished that film. They never aired it. And then they pulled the plug on my project. So that's oh, when that's I called bad. George Lucas's office. I don't think I spoke directly to him. Maybe. Um, and I said, I'm ready to be a worker bee again. And they hired mm-hmm. me on uh, Wrath of Khan. So I missed Empire Strikes Back. That was it. Yeah. And missed that early days when they rebuilt the facility. But I came up on in 1982, I think. Yeah, because it was my 30th birthday and uh, I drove up, I took out a gas tank uh, on my, because I had a, a Hertz rental truck <laughs>
0: uh-huh. and
1: I didn't kind of understand the depth of the truck. And so when I pulled in to fill it with gas, I took out a tank. <laughs> yeah. Everybody had to shut everything down. <laughs> it was kind of dramatic. Um, it's
0: kind of exciting. That's a, it's a grand entrance yeah, to grand the gas entrance. station, <laughs> yeah. and,
1: and I fit right in. I mean, it was like all my old friends as well as some new ones in the Bay Area. I was so happy to be back because this is where I'm
0: sure. From. Yeah, it's and home.
1: I lived with my sister in a flat in San Francisco in the um, really nice district. What's it called down by the water?
0: Oh, like the Marina. Yeah, maybe? I
1: lived in the Marina. Yeah, it was just great. And then my husband came up about a year later, and that's when I decided, okay. If you're willing to move up here, we can stay married and I'll have kids.
0: <laughs> so so you come to ILM and what you come to work on Rathacon. What was your role?
1: Production supervisor. Good role.
0: Okay. So back in the same, kind of in the same. Oh yeah. Sort of Doing the
1: same done. thing. I had three effects supervisors. We divided the show up. Um, or maybe Ken Ralston was the overall effects supervisor. That's, that's correct. But he just had mm-hmm. three other DPs shooting stuff for him. And it was a great time. We made so much money on that show. Oh, my gosh. Because the studios were used to seeing, like, big numbers under grips and such, not realizing that we are only going to use, like, two grips. I could, I could build them for – I was terrible. I, I just – you know, we were doing three movies at one time, E.T., Poltergeist, and Wrath of Khan. E.T. broke even. Poltergeist lost a lot of money. And our movie, Wrath, uh, made, like, 100% profit. That was, wow. I feel so guilty about that.
0: And you, you guys actually, too, on that job did some uh, of the first, oh, aren't if you I'm not mistaken, computer graphics. Yeah, wow.
1: well, well researched. Yeah, we did the, um, what was that called? It was the planet. The,
0: Ge- the Genesis the effect. The Genesis
1: effect. Thank you. Yeah, that was <laughs> the very first time that we used computer graphics at ILM. And it was from the graphics group next door. Which was its mm-hmm. sprockets, and it was so weird because, you know, you would we had a we had a very primitive email system internal email, mm-hmm. system. and so you'd get these like really flamboyant and friendly and warm, funny emails from the people working on the Genesis effect, and then you'd have a meeting with them, or they'd walk down the hall, and they were like completely different people. They were so introverted. They were so <laughs> unwilling to like. So they, it was like very odd, but in the end, they did a great job for us, but I told them I only had $10,000 in the budget and I'm sure George must've spent like quarter of a million on the research and making that happen. But um, yeah, that was the beginning and it had to be on a monitor, of course, because there was no in and out feature for uh, CG at that point. So you had to shoot it on the monitor. It was great.
0: Yeah. So how many years were you at the Kerner facility?
1: let's see, 82. And then in 91, so about 10 years, well, in 90, oh, wow. 92, then I switched over to the book.
0: And right. So okay. on the
1: Book and on this NTT creativity thing. So I was still affiliated, I would say through 95. And then, and then I went, uh, I went into a different direction. I did the uh, ABC Saturday morning thing. Then I went to LA and worked as the director of marketing at rhythm and Hughes, where I really helped them
0: mm-hmm.
1: be seen as an effects feature effects. That was what I was brought down to do, introduce them to the feature effects opportunities. Cause until then they had just won, you know, a couple years earlier, babe, they had won vision, visual, yeah. visual effects. So they really wanted to capitalize on that, but they were primarily a commercial and theme park house at that point. So we successfully turned them into uh, an, an effects, feature effects company. And I remember John Hughes, God bless him, he really wanted me to stay and be general manager. He he offered, <laughs> you know, Disneyland year round passes for my children, a house <laughs> near Disneyland. <laughs> but I had children in school up here in elementary school and I had a husband yeah. who I was not you know, able to drag around. So I ended up having to leave that job and move back to the Bay Area. And at that point, I went into education. I loved working. Mm -hmm. I love helping people So and using my contacts. So I worked at Expression College for, gosh, three, four years um, where I would take the best and brightest students and get them jobs. It was super rewarding. That's really cool. And it was also like nine to five and I could yeah. go home and be with my kids. And so it was a great, it was a great time. And then I got divorced and I decided it was a January one. It's always a big day for me. I always try to do something meaningful, January one. And this was mm-hmm. my first January one divorced or separated at that point. And I stayed in bed all day because I'd had a dream where I was in a private jet And I was wearing a really good watch, really good shoes, and had a really good haircut. And I thought, (laughs) what do I need to get there? Yeah, that's a good dream. And so I realized I need an MBA. So I went online, and I searched all the programs, and I found the perfect program. It was the um, Berkeley Columbia. I'm looking at the graduation degrees. What are those called? You know, those things you get. Yeah, your diploma. My diploma. Thank you one from Columbia, one from UC Berkeley. Um, I ended up going to, I, I, I applied that whole di- that whole day. I just spent the whole time writing my essays, applying. All that was left was the uh, test that you have to take to get into MBA school. Mm-hmm. I, I've blocked the name of the test, but um, everyone has to do it. So I go, you know, I studied, I go in to take the test and I sailed through the, you know, reading comp and English and writing and all that stuff. And then I sure. hit, I hit the math portion. I hadn't <laughs> had a math class in 32 years. I was like mid-50s <laughs> at this point.
0: <laughs> yeah. Not oh, your jam. my man, God. Yeah.
1: I was like a woman thrown out of a plane, just grabbing at clouds, trying, you know, just horrible. <laughs> so I turn it in. I feel really bad. And I get a call from UC, Berkeley, the... Uh, office of, you know, letting you in or not. And the guy goes, look, you are the type of person we want. We love your background. We really want you in this program. But what happened? You know, like the math you,
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> and he said, I bet if you take it again, you'll do better. You-, you probably didn't sleep the night before you were nervous. I said, yes, that's right. So I take it again. I do worse. <laughs> 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 they let me in anyway. <laughs> Well,
0: that's good. I mean, yeah, it's like for an MBA, like, you know, I mean, math is, you know. How important part of it, is math? It's...
1: If you're going to be like a chief financial officer, it's important. But in right. business school, I learned how to read financials. But the main thing I learned in this incredibly expensive program, it, it was $135,000. Because we were going wow. to New York every six weeks for a week. We went to China. We went to London. We, some people went to South America. I went to India. Mm-hmm. So it was a super expensive program. But Mm -hmm. what I got out of it was the connections. But more than that, I learned Excel. Oh, my God, I love (laughs) Excel.
0: The most expensive Excel (laughs) school of all time.
1: Crazy, right? So I come (laughs) out of grad school, and I, you know, not to brag, but I won the Most Distinguished Student Award. And I'm sure that's because... I got George Lucas to come and talk to our class. I'm oh, sure wow. Yeah. Oh, and I also started a company while I was there. I was taking an entrepreneur class, and I was studying this uh, easy meal prep stuff, uh-huh. easy meal kit stuff, and I ended up buying a company. And, oh, wow. And, but my classmates at the end said, do not sell your house and put the money into this business. there the food the food business margins are so slight. But you know what I was missing? Yeah, because now blue apron, I use it three nights a week. Google yeah. you know uh, purple onion, all the purple carrot, all these easy Meal kits are working, but they came up with the killer app, and that is, yeah, mail delivery on ice to your home our right. version you had to pick it up or it, you know we had to deliver it you had to pay a delivery guy 10 bucks so it was it was not scalable um mm-hmm. anyway so i had george come i had come to some sort of reunion of star wars at the presidio what year would that have been uh if i went to school anyway it was like the 25th anniversary or something and mm-hmm. george is talking about going to stanford business school and talking and i said well if you're going to talk to stanford you need to talk to berkeley and so he said, we'll talk to Lynn Hale. So I set it up through Lynn. He shows up and he, uh, I introduce him at the, at the class. And the class was like 70 people and they were so excited. You know? And I said, you can't bring anything for him to sign that is so unprofessional. You know, no. Right. We'll do a picture and everybody will have that. So I introduced him by saying, you know, I was trying to figure out why would George Lucas agree to come and speak to my Master's MBA class, and
0: then, mm-hmm. I, and
1: then I realized, oh, it's because he's grateful to me for helping him write that opening iconic line a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And I look over, and he's like slack jawed. He's like, "What? What are you talking about?" <laughs> and I said, "George, you don't remember." Cut to here. We are at at thirty two ten or what is it? Uh, you know, Valjean, here we are at the Star Wars production office and it's late at night and I'm stamping storyboards with like what kind of background star plate we're going to put in it. And you were, were working on a, a yellow legal pad and you turned to me and you said, how does this sound? A long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I said, no, I don't like the long, long, far, far. So then he says, OK, scribble. And he reads a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away. And I said, just try flipping it. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Bingo, says I. <laughs>
0: oh, wow. So
1: he was outraged that I was taking credit. <laughs> <laughs> and he claims he has no memory of that whatsoever, but I know it happened. <laughs> um, so All anyway, right. well, I'll I take your him, word and, <laughs> and the class is roaring with laughter, of course, because his reaction is just classic. And he proceeds to talk about how you have to follow your passion. And that mm-hmm. that's the only way to happiness. It's not about money. It's not about, you know, success as seen by others. It's about knowing what will make you feel like you are fulfilling what you were put here on earth to do. And that's exactly what they'll tell you at the Yale happiness class. That. Have you ever done that?
0: Yeah. It's an No, art. I've never done that. Check but I, I love that sentiment. It seems very true to me.
1: Yeah. And of course, people, cynical people, were like, yeah, easy for you to say with you ha- your gorgeous ranch and your homes and your millions. But really, it's so true that happiness has nothing, almost, you, you get a bump. It, I really recommend this course. It's an online Yale course. It's called mm-hmm. uh, The Art of Happiness, I think. It's the most popular mm-hmm. course they've ever had. And basically, it comes down to you need something to do, something to love. And something to hope for and that helping others is your fastest way to happiness. You could win the lottery and you get a bump for a year. You could get married, you get a bump for a year, but ultimately happiness is based on you fulfilling what you were put on earth to do. So
0: that's, very that's very beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. I, that I like a that a lot.
1: Yeah. And I think I've, I just recently realized I love helping people and you know, the other thing I'm not so proud of, but I love to be adored. <laughs> so if you can <laughs> well, do no both, <laughs> you can help people like you get some kid a job, they're going to adore you, right? It, it's like they it works together. So yeah, yeah. M- helping connect people. And now that I'm retired, I just feel like this mentorship program is something I can really get behind and have gotten behind. And when I can connect somebody to somebody that needs them, that is such a good feeling. And I credit Women in Animation, Rise Up Animation, and Access VFX as three existing mentorship programs. And that, you know, I felt, I told V, yes, let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's mm-hmm. send our members who want to be mentors to those three organizations. And that's what we've done in phase one. Phase two will be. Um, more of an internal where VES members who want to be mentees get that opportunity. And so I'll be able to help right, right, them Which, as I, well.
0: which I, I have volunteered for. for. <gasps> yeah. Did you, Matt? That's, that's how we oh,
1: started Oh, that's how talking. we met. Yeah, that's right. I sent you a... <laughs> where did I send you?
0: Uh, I, I'd have to look at up. Yeah,
1: email it's either now, but, yeah. Access VFX. Because you mentioned women and people of color. So I probably sent you to Access VFX. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Uh, but I do think you're, you're right. right. I mean, I, that kind of paying it forward and that idea of mentoring and really, you know, engaging and um, sharing—it's huge. Uh, sort
1: of—it's huge. That's it's how so, most people so make it in this business. Is it's not yeah. the mentorship is step one, sponsorship is step two. Like, right. if we can find the superstars among these mentees, I have I have places to send them for jobs. I mean, because my education committee, our education committee at the VES, is very well connected. And there's people at Netflix. You know, this is, our business is exploding, Matt. Even though the coronavirus has slowed it down slightly, it's now that distribution has massively changed and it's all going to be streamed. there's going to be so much more material required, and we don't have enough talent. So, what an yeah, excellent no, I think opportunity. It's a great
0: opportunity for young people, for young people
1: for sure. of color and, and women yep. to become part of this team of workers because it's good, it's decent paying jobs. I don't like the hours. I prefer if people job share. There's a lot of improvements to be made um, in our business. I don't like people working weekends, I don't like people not having balanced lives. Um I don't like the tax incentives. <laughs> but yeah. it has risen the boat worldwide. I do love yeah. the fact that the business is now international. I don't like that studios are making such a kickback from taxpayers. I don't I don't think yeah, that's appropriate at all. So, so
0: I have I have two yeah. last questions that I really wanted to ask you about. Um the first is uh y- you have such an interesting sort of historical window and insight, I think unique amongst a lot of the people that I'll have a chance even to talk to. Um, you you were there at really the beginning and you have so much kind of historical knowledge of of ILM and of its success in those really sort of early days um, up to kind of how now it's such a kind of household name really when we think of visual effects. I'm wondering if from your vantage point, That culture that the company has, that culture of kind of, you know, the client coming and saying, hey, I need to do X, can you do it? And they sort of look at each other and the answer is, yeah, we can do that. Uh, This kind of almost a fearless mindset that like we can figure it out. Uh, We'll figure out a way to get it done. Where do you think that comes from? Is it the nature of the work or is it engendered somewhere within... Is it part of some ethos, do you think, that came from the founding of the company? I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that.
1: Very interesting. Yes. Uh, you use the word fearless, and I think that is the key. And what allowed our group to be so fearless was being thrown in the water by George Lucas, where John Dykstra had said, yeah, we can do this, having no idea how he was going to accomplish what George wanted on Star Wars. And then bringing together all these people who said, yes, out of fearlessness, let's try it. And they tried and failed a lot of things. I mean, there were mistakes made, clearly, that, Mm -hmm. that, that slowed us down. But it's the ongoing. And I think the fearless culture stayed within ILM. And it is partly because... George Lucas had money to throw at the problems. Like, where do you Mm -hmm. think CG came from, right? He was throwing millions of dollars at developing these tools that have now, you know, now we're not the only ones. Now there's so many companies doing great work and coming up with amazing software to do so. But in the early days, it took those two things, the fearlessness of the artists and technicians and the cash behind it to make it happen and make experimentation happen. Um, I don't... Well,
0: and you talk about mistakes too. And I think, you know, making mistakes along the way and learning from those mistakes to being iterative in how you develop and build upon, uh, you know, the things that do function and do succeed and develop new techniques and stuff. I think that kind of experimentation is really key too.
1: I hope you're going to talk to Dennis Murin, who really was the bridge between analog Mm -hmm. and digital at ILM. And he did it by requesting like a leave of absence so that he could take apart a computer. Like he wanted to see what are (laughs) all this thing
0: work. That's such (laughs) an
1: odd request, right?
0: There's hardly any moving pieces in this thing. (laughs) So
1: he took it upon himself. It was an intellectual choice, but that's how he learns is by breaking it all down. And also he just has an artist's eye. And I think that was, in addition to fearlessness, you need to have the artist's eye. And we had so mm-hmm. many people that cared so much about the quality of the image. Uh, I remember when Warren Franklin was sent by the company, before he like got promoted to be VP of 10 divisions at LucasArts, Lucasfilm, ILM, mm-hmm. he was sent to Stanford to the business school uh, not for a complete degree, but like an executive program. Right. And he shared with me that everybody was so amazed in the program because he said, our biggest problem at ILM is that everyone cares too much. People, people will <laughs> stay late into the night to just get it perfect. And you know that slows us down and costs us money. And all the other executives were so envious because their issue is that people don't care enough. People in yeah. their businesses could give a shit. And so for Warren to complain about our commitment to quality was pretty hilarious.
0: That genuine passion for the work, exactly. I guess, is really key.
1: Exactly. Thank you for sharing that, that set of words because it's fearlessness, it's commitment to quality, and it is the passion. And that is is what separated ILM I think but was it really separated because really we started it you know there were no special mm-hmm. effects visual effects houses when we did Star Wars we had to build it yeah and then we owned it we owned it for 10 years there was no competition until what digital domain well boss films um, yeah, and
0: then I guess Sony eventually Sony too, eventually but screen. really
1: we owned it for a decade or more. And uh, won a lot of Academy Awards because we were the ones. And for a while, we only worked for George and his friends. And then when we opened it up, um, that's when things really shifted.
0: Exploded. Exploded. Yeah. I mean, the company uh, grew massively.
1: But then the real explosion happened with computer graphics. And that's, you know, I went down with the ship because after I graduated and had my degree, I went back to Kerner which is the spinoff of, from ILM of all the practical physical effects and all yep. those physical departments, the cameras, the grip equipment. You know, George believed everything was going digital, so he moved everybody to the Presidio but left behind millions of dollars worth of equipment. Yeah.
0: lights and yeah. the stage. Yeah. And-,
1: <laughs> and Mark Anderson led this group and found a funder Kevin Duncan from the um, that great wine. I should really credit them for their Cabernet. Something (laughs) sellers. Oh God, look that up, will you for me? Uh, Yeah. Um, Silver sellers. Silver sellers. Uh huh. Anyway, great Cabernet, hundred (laughs) dollar bottle Cabernet. So he comes in and he buys it from George. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't guarantee the price. But I think it was something so low, like $750,000 for millions of dollars worth of equipment. And they renegotiated the lease. And so I came right from MBA school with my new MBA to become executive producer of that company. Very quickly, I saw they were not going to happen when it comes to a 3D camera rig. And I was proven right because it's all done in post now, nobody shoots 3D. And they were coming up with a 3D camera rig. They were in development, it was terrible. They had really terrible, it was like the sister of this guy who wrote a script. I mean, it was terrible. And then, um, so I said, I'll focus on what we've always done, which is action miniatures. So I worked with Brian Gernand and that whole team and we got gigs and ILM was giving us huge gigs. But the revenues were dropping every year by 50%, you know, started with 18 million, went to nine, went to four and a half. I left when it was at three. I just saw the writing on the wall. It's all CG guys. So I left um, and pretty much retired. That's when I went into the golf field um, Mm -hmm. and sold memberships at a private golf course. But (laughs) me and, but that was truly Matt, the best job ever. I mean, I would, yeah, before, I'm sure
0: pretty cush. About
1: eleven, <laughs> my office was sitting at the bar. I mean, I didn't drink. You, you're not allowed to drink when you're <laughs> working.
0: When you're on the on the club, I'm yeah.
1: at the at the bar, so talking to everybody. And my job was to play golf with potential members. So I ran the marketing, right. I ran advertising. I'm the only I, I did a great job. I think that our club got more new members than any other club in California that year. Uh, well, I was there about four years. Um, And I broke the rule, you are allowed to advertise. They thought, everyone (laughs) thought you weren't allowed to advertise. (laughs) So you are allowed to advertise and we did. And we got tons of members and I had the best job ever playing golf three times a week with really nice people. But unfortunately, I can't keep my mouth shut, Matt. And I'm (laughs) not a Trump fan and unfortunately, oh, yeah. there are wealthy republicans who join things like private golf clubs and they were cheering the muslim ban and cheering the planned parenthood defunding and cheering yeah, that's Trump. depressing and i just couldn't keep my mouth shut so i had to leave and now i'm retired and i'm just volunteering at family justice center for, to help victims of domestic violence and i Volunteer at Elder Wisdom because you get to give advice to people that write in and actually want your advice. Um, unlike my, found well, you're helping the
0: VES with the and uh, I'm, I, with the I, mentoring yes, program, I which I think is super important.
1: So that I could do that, the mentoring program, and um, so that's yeah. And I babysit two days a week. So
0: that's that sounds life. really nice too. Like getting to be a good uh, a good grandparent.
1: That's really important. You know, I think <laughs> I'll. The kids will remember me thanks to that.
0: Yeah. Well, Patricia Rose Degnan, <laughs> I cannot thank you enough for for uh, spending some time with me. It's really a, a privilege to have the chance to talk with you
1: and to hear your story. And I thank you so much for sharing with me.